Friends in Art welcomes you to The Art Parlor, where visually impaired artists of all types will discuss their work. Pull up a chair, bring along your beverage of choice, and listen to thoughtful, stimulating conversations with visually impaired artists in all media and from all parts of the world. And now, here are your hosts, Annie and Peter. Welcome to the Friends in Art Art Parlor. Uh, my name is Peter Alcho, the program chair of Friends in Art. And we also have with us the president of Friends in Art, Annie Chiapetta. Say hi, Annie. Hello, everyone. And we have a very special guest today uh, named uh, Andrew Leland, who wrote the bestseller book, The Country of the Blind, which has gotten lots of pub all over the place. And so, Andrew, we're delighted you're here. Oh, thanks a lot for having me. Appreciate it. So, Andrew, what prompted you to write this book in the first place? I've got a degenerative retinal disease called retinitis pigmentosa, or RP, which is fairly common as far as inherited retinal diseases go. I was diagnosed as a teenager and didn't really have much impact in my life beyond a sort of abstract cloud on the horizon, you know, with, with, with some notable exceptions. I, you know, I stopped driving at night in my twenties. I stopped driving during the day in my thirties, you know, but, but even, even through those milestones, blindness and, and vision loss remained a sort of abstract feature of my life. And about 10 years ago or so, my visual field had narrowed to the point where, you know, getting around town on foot, you know, I, I needed a white cane and reading print or, or using my computer, I needed to start using assistive technology. And and that turn, that fork in the road, I guess, um, raised a new set of questions for me and a new set of experiences that weren't as easily brushed off as those earlier milestones. You know, I'm not saying that it was easy to stop driving, but you know, I was living at the time in San Francisco and it wasn't an unthinkable thing. But 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 you know, using the white cane in public or trying to figure out how to use a screen reader, you know, those things were really big and beguiling. And I have a background in writing and editing and publishing. And, you know, the way that I had come to understand wrapping your head around a, a really big, difficult, intractable issue like that was was through writing. And so I started writing about it on a smaller scale at first, doing sort of short pieces about about blindness and, and culture, you know, that started with my own experience, but then expanded out to look at larger issues that that it touched on. And that that sort of felt like a productive mode to me where, you know, I didn't I wasn't just interested in writing about my own experience. I wanted to think about how it connected to these bigger histories of disability and, and blindness. And, and and after doing a couple of stories like that, I just felt like I felt a kind of momentum. And I felt um I felt that it was a large enough world to explore that that it would sustain a whole book. And so that's that's how I arrived at the project. So in the book, you talked to lots of interesting folks who were blind or other people <clears> as well. And I found it interesting that Matt Schifrin, who was one of our scholarship winners, put me in touch with you. How did you get to know Matt? Uh, it's funny, you know, I actually knew his sister and his brother-in-law first. One of the things I've done in my life is is podcasting and radio. And I made a podcast for many years called The Organist, which was put out by KCRW, the Southern California public radio station. 
And it was an arts and culture podcast that I hosted and produced. And when I was first starting it, I just I just reached out to a lot of different producers who were making the kind of work I was interested in featuring, which was, you know, if I had to put a fine point on it, it would be like culture reporting with a with an adventurous kind of experimental bent to it. And one name that, that came up in a few contexts was David Weinberg, who's Matt Schifrin's brother-in-law. Mm-hmm. And um, so I became friends with, with David. And, you know, I remember one of the first times we spoke on the phone, he told me about tapes he had made for his blind brother-in-law and i was like okay whatever that's cool you know we, we kept on talking about other things but then over the years david and i became friends and then i met his sister katia who's a brilliant fiction writer katia apikina and um and then you know i think there was at a radio festival in, in chicago i think where matt was just tagging along with uh with david and katia at the at the conference and i so i got to hang out with matthew a little bit then and we've stayed in touch ever since and he's been a really valuable resource for me just in terms of connecting me with other people like yourself, certainly, but also uh, just that he's, he's a really wonderful correspondent. Um, he always asks me difficult questions that I really appreciate. You know, our correspondence is one where there's the casual, like, how's it going? Congratulations on this thing. What are you working on? But then there's always like a second paragraph that's like, you know, what do you think about this new, you know, AI or, you know, they're, they're, he's, he's, a, he's a really bright guy. And so I'm, I'm always grateful for his thoughts yeah matt really is a bright guy and a brilliant musician and a and the, a lego guy as i'm sure you know mm-hmm. it's amazing work in uh lego bricks and um so we we are we were fortunate to to find him and he's been a wonderful addition to the friends and art crowd i found the book really interesting as a totally blind guy i was born totally blind and of course i knew about rp and i had friends who who were rp but your your book really sort of put a whole new perspective on the, the challenges that folks who, you know, gradually or not so gradually lose their vision because of RP. Um, and I found that really valuable as a totally blind guy. How has the book been received generally? I mean, it's gotten lots of pub in places like the New York Times. I saw a review on, on Sojourners, which is a progressive Christian website. It's gotten lots of pub. How are you, uh, how, how has the book been received generally? And what have you learned from all of your sort of public relations of the book? It's been amazing. You know, I, I worked in publishing as an editor and with writers for long enough to know that one can't take it for granted, you know, having any readers and, you know, any kind of attention. So, you know, I really had lowered my expectations as, as low as I could stand it before the book came out, just because I know, I know anything is possible and often has very little to do with the merit of a book, whether it does well or not. You know, I think there's so many different factors that can go into <clears throat> you know how a book finds an audience finds a readership um but but by experience I've, I've just been unbelievably lucky that it's connected with readers and you know i've heard from a lot of you know the folks you might expect you know like every every week i get i get messages on every platform i'm on you know from blind folks and families of blind folks you know family members but also just you know random sighted people who who find the book and then that's been it's all wonderful as a writer you know to hear from readers who who are connecting with your work i was expecting to hear from the people you know which is not to say i don't appreciate it but you know i i I expect the emails that i get that are like hey i have rp your experience very closely connects with mine and it was wonderful you know now i can hand somebody a book and say you want to know what my life has been like here you know and i'm on like the rp facebook page and i you know i'm like tagged every week now with with posts like that and it's so gratifying and i'm so i'm so grateful for it but but the, the really interesting thing has been people you know who say i have a, a mobility disability or you know i'm i'm autistic and your book 
you know, our, our experiences are radically different, but there are aspects of the experience because I write a lot about the kind of social awkwardness and the social difficulties of adjusting to a, a new disability and the sort of way that it filters into your relations with your friends and with strangers and with family. And, and so it's been really interesting to see how there's a universality to the experience as well as the in extreme particularity. And, that, and that's true. I've been surprised, you know, hearing from folks like yourself who who are born blind and totally blind, because so much of what I write about is about the ambiguities of low vision and like mm. this this kind of confounding spectrum where you're sort of like, you know, I quote a person I met in a RP support group in Massachusetts who told me, you know, I lose a bunch of vision. And then I think to myself, like, wow, I thought I was blind before. And now I'm really blind you know, and then 10 years will go by and she'll have the same thought. And she's been basically having the same thought every decade for like, you know, 40 years at this point or 50 years. But to hear from from totally blind folks who don't have that experience, who but who still can find some of their experience in in other parts of, of what I write about um, in the history of blindness and in some of the interesting questions that come up around technology and so on. Andrew, this is Annie. I have RP as well. I wasn't diagnosed till I was 28. Mm. So a lot of your book resonated with me uh, in particular. And I wish there was a book like yours when my parents were struggling with mm. what's going on with Anne, um, because no one knew what was going on with me and my eyesight. Mm. They just knew I couldn't see well, you know. Mm. So and there were there were a lot of those awkward moments and things that happened to me, you know, and from being in school at a social level and then all the way, you know, into my marriage, you know, I, mm. I lost, started losing my vision when right after I got married and had my first kid. So that was mm. like a huge explosion in my personal life, you know? Mm. And I think a lot of the historical pieces that you layered into your book really you know, the people should know that anybody should mm -hmm. know that a parent of a child with 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 whatever disability you want to uh, you put in the blank. There's so much that people need to know about what to expect, maybe, or how to prepare and some of the roadblocks that you might encounter. So I really appreciate you writing this book and being very thorough about you know, the the history and the in history of it, like ACB and NFB and AFB and all the acronyms. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> There's, I mean, can you imagine being a parent going, oh, I have oh, to know yeah. all this now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I really appreciate that. Oh, uh, yeah. And it took me so long to to tease out that alphabet soup of all the different blindness organizations and, you know, which, which one referred to which one and what that meant. You know, and I think it's a cliche, but it's true to say that I had to write the book that I wanted to read. And, you know, there's so many great books about blindness out there that I really, you know, I could I could give you my my list of my greatest hits, but no, you know, too. there wasn't exactly this this book that I you know that I really wanted, um, and so mm. that that was a really strong motivation for me to, you know, and I think I think like for me as a writer, it messes me up. Like I kind of get too much in my own head if I start thinking too much about like this will be good for parents of blind, you know, then right. you know, I think it feels yeah. a little too didactic. But I think yeah. I just had to have faith that like, if I was really true to what I needed, that it would have value for other people too. And, and thankfully that, that seems to be the it case. It certainly does. Yes. 
Andrew, I was really intrigued by, uh, I guess I would call it the architecture uh, as a music composer. You know, you sort of think about what's going to go first and how the story is going to progress musically. And I was sort of intrigued by the architecture of your book. You you have three different parts. You have chapters in each part. And the story sort of goes through, sort of weaves through, as you said, a mixture of personal experiences and sort of history. Can you talk about how you sort of developed that architecture of, of the book? You know, how you figured yeah. out what was going to come first and all that good stuff? Yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, any writing teacher will tell you, you know, how important structure is. And, you know, I think the only way to really appreciate that is to to try to to write, write you know, whether you're writing an essay or a book or, or something in between, you know, I think structure is just the name of the game. Um, and I was, I really had to learn on the job, you know, having never written a book before. And I was so lucky to have the guidance of a really top shelf editor, Emily Cunningham at Penguin Press, um, who, who, really pushed me it was really tough in, in such a wonderful way. Um, you know, I, the first time we had a meeting after she bought the book, uh, which I sold just with like a, I wrote a chapter where I went to a NFB national convention. And so I, I basically like had that as a sample chapter. And then I wrote a kind of a version of, of, of what the current introduction to the book is as a kind of proposal uh, with like an annotated table of contents. And then for our first meeting, she said, okay, bring an outline. And I was like, I thought I wrote an outline of a book proposal, but okay, I'll just bring like a robust, like a more robust version. And then, you know, I, I, I printed it out in like 22 point font so I could, I could access it at our meeting <laughs> and it ended up being this like crazy seeming doc, doc, dossier, you know, where, and then I, I gave it to her and I was like, I'll also email this to you so you don't have to read it in 22 point font. And, you know, she very graciously got back to me, you know, maybe a week later saying, this isn't really an outline. And I looked at it again and sort of with horror realized I had just sort of like bullet pointed every thought I'd ever had about blindness, you know, or just like no. Stevie Wonder, like Milton, <laughs> Borges, Homer, you know, like artificial intelligence, like screen readers. Like, and it was, it really, like, it, it was, it was not quite as bad as I'm making it sound, but it was, it was close. And, you know, it, it took a lot of refinement and back and forth. I remember, and I remember this day I was working in a library and she wrote to me and was like, okay, now you've got a good outline. Now, like, this will be very good to have under your belt as you, like, go off and start writing. And, you know, the the, the final structure of the book is not too dissimilar from what that outline that, that that she kind of pushed me to really work work to get work into ended up being. But even as I wrote, you know, then, of course, things kept shifting and, you know, entire chapters fell away or they, you know, merged together or they got rearranged. And, Really, from from day one till the very end, things were moving around and, and getting cut out. And you know, the other cliche about just writing being rewriting and all writing being revision uh, mm-hmm. couldn't be more true. And that's just it's just so important to the composition of a book, as as I think you suggested, a composition of a musical piece that yeah. you have to be willing to you know to cut and to rearrange in order to have something take a final form that will be of use and, and sort of have the, the greatest impact. Since we're a bunch of artists, you know, we're the art affiliates of the American Council of the Blind. You have a couple of chapters that sort of address arts. One I think is called Camera Obscura, if I have it correct. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. about the the, uh, what the Library of Babel or Babel or whatever it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so can you just talk about those chapters and what do you think the key points are and how you got to write them or anything that seems appropriate about those chapters to a bunch of artists? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, So since you're talking about the structure of the book, you know, those, those two chapters appear in the second, the second of the three parts of the book, which is called the lost world, where I'm really wrestling with 
this feeling that I have of like, you know, what am I losing? Like, wh- and then how, and then, you know, the, 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 the follow-up question, which is like, what remains or what will I do? What will I have in the wake of that loss? And what, and what will you gain? That, that's exactly also part of part of that section as well. Certainly. Yeah. You know, I, that's not necessarily an idea I had going into it. I think I, you know, it took me some hard work to, you know, cause I didn't want to, I didn't want to have like a pat inspirational, like, you know, and, and then look at all that I've gained without really feeling it, you know, but I really, in the end did come to that conclusion that there are real gains as well as real losses. You know, I tried to be really honest with myself in, in those, in those sorts of conclusions. The two chapters that you're, that you bring up, the library of Babel is about reading, you know, and the sort of my loss of print and then thinking about what blind reading is, what blind literacy is, and, you know, and going into the history of that and my own personal narrative of, of sort of my trying out these different tools and different techniques and, and te- technologies. And then Camera Obscura is really broadly speaking about blindness and visual culture, everything from art museums and visual, you know, fine arts to TV and, and, and cinema and just the idea of blind people's appreciation for and access to visual beauty, visual information. I can talk more specifically about, about both of them. You know, I guess, I guess to thinking about the arts, you know, the, the chapter about visual culture begins with Emily Gassio, who is a New York-based artist who I met while I was writing the book, who actually has a really lovely exhibition up right now at the Queens Museum in New York called Otherworlding that I, I really, she's, she's doing touch tours. I think there's another one coming up this spring um, that folks can find on the Queens Museum's website. Uh, and if you're in the New York City area, I, I really recommend it. And there's also some virtual stuff that they're offering too. And you can actually request, uh, if you're low vision or blind, you can request Braille and, um, and, and they actually will give you like a little tactile print of one of her drawings, which is great. But anyway, um, her story was a really nice way in for me because she's an artist who was, she was cited. She was going to Cooper Union, which is like one of the top art schools in, in New York. And she lost her visions very suddenly. And you know, really was faced with this choice of like, she was like, should I become a massage therapist? Like, I'm sort of like, there's no point in being an artist anymore. And she got really good blindness training and and started taking ceramics classes. And then like, you know, it took her, I think, a year or more to to kind of get back on her feet. Then she uh, she got her MFA from Yale in, in sculpture and really pushed through to become a really brilliant artist. I mean, you know, she was already a great artist, but I think, you know, I think talking about the gains, it strikes me that the work she's making now and the process that she's following, I think she's really excited about it. And I, I, you know, I'd have to let her speak for herself, but it definitely seems like blindness has enriched her connection with art. And um, Emily Gossio is her name. Who was the gentleman that was talking about losing his ability to read print and then Hmm. losing the voice that you know oh. his his inner yeah, yeah, narrator um yeah 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 that, so there's a oh go ahead oh so i just wanted to say it. that really resonated with me i was like i that might have been what i was going through at the time when i mm. when i grieved over the loss of print it yeah. is truly a shift in your brain matter to be able to extract the same appreciation for audio the way 
you once had, you know, when you could read a book, you know, physically read a book. Uh, I know. Yeah, I went through that. I was just like, I can't read anymore. Hmm. <laughs> it's not the same. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I had to, I had to muscle through that and, um, you know, rectify that in my head. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm in, I'm in the midst of it right now. And I mean, it's, it's funny, like I got an email from somebody today, a reader who has RP, who actually has the same specific genetic mutation that I have, which is useful information just because RP has such a wide yeah. range of, of etiologies, you know, and I can't resist, even though I know better, like, and I know it kind of annoys a lot of blind people when you ask them this kind of question, but I was sort of like, how much vision, you know, do you have and how old are you? You know, because like for somebody with RP with the genetic profile, I'm kind of like, what, you know, because no doctor will ever tell me. Where are you at? (laughs) Yeah. And and it's like, it's the same thing that I was saying before about the the person who was like, I thought I was blind then, but I'm really blind now because she's like, she, in this, in the email, she was sort of saying two things, two contradictory things, which I feel like I experience now and that I have to accept that I'm going to continue experiencing, which is to say, she was like, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much blind. Like, you know, right. I, I, I don't really see anything, but then every once in a while I see something that sort of surprises me. Cause like the lighting is perfect. And like, you know, the stars align just right. Like this mm-hmm. image will appear and it's, it's baffling, but then mostly I'm not, but then also I can see my phone, you know? And I was like, Oh wait, what? Like, you know, and it's just like yeah. this sort of contradiction. Um, but it's also not a contradiction. And like, I think we can just, she can, you know, she, she is blind, but then there also is this like vision floating around in there too. Yeah, and, and that's all to say that like that's the place I'm in now, and then I'm I'm I expect to be in that place even more in five years, and you know anything can happen, uh, you know. And that's why my doctor won't won't answer my question. This is a very roundabout way of answering your question about print, though, because you know I, I'm going through it in the sense that like you know when I when I when I write now, I've got a giant external monitor, I've got you know Zoom on my on my PC, so I can. Right you know, I can, I can see the words, but then often if I'm, if my screen reader is quiet or if the environment gets really loud or something, then I'm like, Oh, I really am relying on that screen reader like 80% of the time. But then if like the monitor goes out or if I can't see something, then sometimes I get frustrated with that too. So I'm very much multimodal in my reading and writing. And the guy you're talking about is Ryan Knighton, who, That's right. um, who, who was one of the first writers I ever read about RP on RP he has a, a great book called cockeyed. And he's also in a really interesting film called Vision Portraits by Rodney Evans, which is a, a documentary that's very much in the spirit of my book, I think, where Rodney Evans also has RP. He's a filmmaker. He's made a, a couple of really interesting films. And he goes off on this quest to sort of find blind artists who um, whose example he might follow, who can kind of show him the path into what it means to be a blind artist. And Ryan is one of those people. And and when he's talking to Ryan, Ryan is sort of showing him how his screen reader works and how he writes with a screen reader. And Ryan Knighton is actually a screenwriter, TV writer. He wrote on that show In the Dark for the CW. He also wrote for Billions, I think it's called, on I think Showtime. And I've heard him talk about this as like like using a screen reader. And this is this is getting back to Peter's point about you know the affordances of of, of blindness in the art, right. artistic realm. You know, he's like if you're writing dialogue screen reader is great, you know, because like when you're writing for the stage or for the screen, you don't want to fall in love with the words on the page, right? It's a little bit like they tell you when you're learning to use audio editing, editing software visually, a lot of visual, you know, sound engineers will get really into like the way that the 
wave files look yes, you know, like, yes oh look yes. at that like beautiful mountainside it's like no <laughs> your person sitting at home is not going to hear hear those beautiful mountainsides right you gotta you gotta use your ears and it's like that to write dialogue and you know even prose which is you know for for many readers a highly visual medium you know i did it today i was editing a piece of writing and i could hear where the comma was missing and that's something that a screen reader does quite well yeah, I, I think that gradual appreciation of AI or artificial voices or what we used, you know, what we caused, what what I call Jaws, the Jaws voice. Um, mm-hmm. Eloquence, um, yeah. I, yeah, the eloquence voice. I don't, I don't want a natural sounding voice when I'm writing, especially Same with here. my poetry. I want it to be artificial. Yes. Uh, you know, it, it helps me catch those, whether the comma is missing or whether the words aren't enunciating correctly and I perform a lot of my poetry so I want you know that's how I know I can work with it on a spoken word level as if if Jaws is reading it and it sounds pretty good in Jaws then <laughs> I know hey you know I've got something so I think I've I've learned to work with what I've got and um and and for that it's different for everyone you know and that that process how long it takes uh took me a long time that's such an interesting I'm, point. I'm, oh, go ahead, Peter. I'm really curious for both of you, but especially yeah. you. Can you talk about, we talked about uh, what you gained through becoming blind. I, th- I think that's a really interesting. So, Andrew, I'm especially, especially mm-hmm. interested in your, in your take on this, but Andy, too, since you both have RP and have, have this sort of similar journey, what have you gained from be- becoming blind or becoming more blind or I don't know quite how you say it? Sure. Yeah, some people really take issue with with somebody with low vision claiming the mantle of blindness. I respect, you know, I got to respect other people's opinions, but I think for myself, I'm cool calling myself blind, even if I have, you know, a couple of degrees of useful vision. We can get into that. That's not that's not answering your question, though. I mean, I think I've gained a number of things. Uh, I think if I had to summarize them, I would say that, you know, I, I think about Ryan Knighton again, who we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, he has written about how he writes, how blindness for him isn't always necessarily a subject, but it's a perspective. And I really like that. And and there's a really lovely writer, Leona Godin, who wrote a book that I really admire called Their Plant Eyes, which is a, the subtitle yes. is a, a culture, a personal and cultural history of blindness that um, my book is very much in conversation with too, I think. And, and she also really, uh, that's a really important idea for her, the idea of blindness as a perspective. And I think that you know for any artist not to say any writer you know that idea of perspective is crucial right you it's not just about having ideas but you know i think i think in order to have an idea you need to have a perspective you need to have a particular take on the world a particular set of experiences that informs how you apprehend the world and how you how you encounter it and how you engage with it and so for me i think you know not that i did that that i lacked perspective before i became blind or disabled or low vision or whatever you want to call it but I think that the experience has has opened up my world in a way to you know connect me with people I never would have met, experiences I wouldn't have had, and ideas I, I wouldn't have considered, you know, feelings, you know, the whole range that that an artist or a writer values and 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 hunts for, and you know, treasures, you know, all of those things came to me through this experience. 
Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think um, I'm, my profession was, uh, I was a family therapist for 20 years. And I remember writing my thesis, you know, for my master's. And there's back then it was about my, and I was losing my vision then, but I was still considered a high partial. Um, mm. <laughs> and it, my my thesis was about being in a place where I could appreciate more and understand more of how it meant to be human and the human condition hmm. and you just spoke about perspective uh, and that was all part of it i also i think that if i hadn't lost my vision i probably wouldn't be as curious about what it was like to to struggle and you know internally and also improve myself in many ways i mean hmm. you know because i you know, I guess I was, I wouldn't say broken, but I was probably bent <laughs> in places. <laughs> and, um, and, and I think ha being visually impaired uh, strengthened me to, you know, to maybe go back and repair some of that. So, mm. you know, as a, as a therapist, I found that, you know, what could have, what, what at times made me sad or angry or, you know, uh, you know, afraid also made me stronger and gave me the curiosity and the ability to, to, you know, to achieve what I really wanted. And, um, I've done that and, you know, I'm writing hmm. and being, being a poet and doing all those things. So, yeah, I, you know, it's, you know, it's you not know, whether I would, it's not whether I would want to do it over or not. It's just, it's just what happened, hmm. <laughs> you know, and it being accepting it and moving on. So. Hmm. What your comments remind me of is, and again, I was, I've been blind, totally blind since birth is I think, you know, it's hard to know what it would be like if I were sighted, right? It's sort of a hard question to answer, but I have sort of come to the conclusion that I think because of the challenges I've experienced, I have learned a certain degree of humility right? Mm -hmm. That I am not perfect. The people around me aren't, aren't perfect. And that I shouldn't be so arrogant to use a word that it really is over time has taught me to be more respectful of those around me and, you know, to, to leave that arrogance at the door, which is not always mm -hmm. easy to do for me. But I think it really has sort of done that over time. Again, I don't know what it would be like if I were totally sighted, but I have a cousin who's totally sighted and people say I'm very much like, and he is terrific. And he has this very strong willed sort of, I know best about everything. And he's sort of mellowed over time, but he still has that. And I like to think I'm not quite as obnoxious <laughs> as he is. Um, you know, I don't know that. We don't think you are Peter, at least well, I can you. speak for myself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Andrew, um, uh, one of the things, a common theme throughout the book that really interested me, interested me was a word that you called either paradox or tension, mm -hmm. you know, between various things. I don't want to put words in your mouth. So talk about the, those paradoxes as you thought up through through them and how you were sort of, sort of living them or how the yeah. community might think about them or whatever you want to. How the blindness community might think of them, you said? Yeah, or whatever, whatever you know. What when he said, yeah, you know, when you think about paradox in your book, what what sort of comes to mind and all that good stuff? Yeah, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is is sort of what we've touched on a little bit, which is the paradox that I live every day, which is that I think of myself as blind and yet I can see, you know, what T-shirt my kid is wearing today, and how can that be? And I don't, 
there are days when I feel like an absolute fraud. Uh, still now, you know, like who am I writing this book about blindness that you know is is in the national press, and yet I can see what what t-shirt my kid is wearing. Like that's not blindness, you know. And I've done interviews with blind people who have, you know, respectfully pushed back a little bit, you know. And I've heard it a lot of different ways, and and I think there's value to those comments. Like you know, one thing I've heard is you know sure like your experience connects with mine but having some vision and having no vision is a different ball game and i just think paradoxes like that are are fertile you know i think i think that it's really important for blind people to i don't know to say that we have to stick together is a little too easy or cheesy sounding but you know there i think there's real value in the kind of solidarity and coalition building of a blind community. And I think when you start policing people out of it, uh, it doesn't do us any favors. And, you know, I think when I think about any, like your master's thesis that you wrote when you were so-called high partial, like you were already tapping into the wisdom of the experience, even with that vision. And I, it, it sounds to me from your description that it's not like you took all that back after you lost more vision, right? Like those, those insights were still good. And I have they no were, they got even richer after that. I mean, <laughs> that was just, yeah. uh, you know, the topping. Um, I drilled down and it just, you know, my, it felt like my world opened up after mm. I started looking, I guess, and um, searching in the right places, you know. Yeah. I kind of feel like, you know, it was definitely a discovery process. I, I mean, I guess if I had to, like, tie the thought off, it would be one of the central paradoxes or tensions that I, I feel like I really encountered and investigated and I'm still wrestling with to this day, every day, it, it, it has to do with identity. And identity, believe it or not, you know, it's not necessarily always a binary thing where like right. you're either black right. or you're white, you're blind or you're sighted, you're a man or a woman. And, you know, these things often have uh, very complicated valences and and spectrums and, you know, they're not necessarily static or stable or immutable, right? Mm-hmm. And and so I think that can feel quite paradoxical and quite t- uh, tension filled, but it's also really fruitful and, and interesting and 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 powerful. So that's that. I think that's yeah. That's my best shot at answering your question, Peter. Under the no, I, descending, I think I, I descending think fog a, of my no, my stomach no, bug here. I think it's a really good answer. Uh, but your 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 uh, comment uh, connects me with another sort of theme of your book, which is the whole concept of intersectionality, right? Mm. About how various uh, identities of our lives sort of bounce off each other as prisms, or I don't know what the right analogy is. And you, you talk. There are a couple of chapters where you talk about that, um, sort of about a, a, a woman who was both blind and lesbian, and what that was like. And and uh, I think you mentioned uh, a guy who's named Neil Patel of the National Federation of the Blind, who talks about the tension of being blind and African American. Can you talk about you know more about that? You know, as you sort of is that an issue you also wrestle with uh other identities sort of balancing you know sort of banging off each other absolutely yeah i mean i think i you know i think that 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 came to the fore for a couple of reasons one just because i think you know you can't write about identity without thinking about intersectionality actually These, before before you go any further what what because there's a lot of confusion about this term to you what is intersectionality mm-hmm. um intersectionality and, you know, I won't give you the academic definition because I'll mess it up. But like, the, you know, <laughs> just like, you know, fast and loose, it's basically the idea that you're not 
one identity in a vacuum. In other words, you know, it came from, I think, black feminist thinking yes. where, you know, the writers were saying, you know, it's not, it's not just that I'm black or it's not just that I'm a woman, but these two right. things are, are a sort of, they're intersecting with each other. And those intersections cause, you know, they have, they have, they have results. Right. And so I think yeah. I, I came into the project of writing this book and the project more broadly of like understanding myself as a blind person with a pretty naive sense that like, okay, I'm like a sighted person and I'm becoming blind. And that's going to mean that I'm now marginalized in some significant way. And, you know, there is truth to that. And I, you know, I've, I've begun to encounter some like very low key versions of that marginality. I don't have really much claim to, to marginality in my life. You know, I have an immense privilege around my other identities, right? Like my race and my gender and so on. But the more I looked into it, the more I realized the sort of folly of that, that idea that, that I could become marginalized just by becoming blind, you know, without attending to the privilege of, of, of race, for instance, you know, and all of this was kind of supercharged by the fact that I wrote the book between like late 2019 and like 2022, where we had the pandemic and George Floyd's murder you know, right. and the Black Lives Matter protests and, mm -hmm. you know, Me Too in the air. Uh, and, you know, I was writing a lot about the NFB and the NFB had a really intense reckoning uh, sort of around all of those issues, uh, you know, right. sexual assault, as well as racial inequality, uh, you know, and mistreatment. And, and so all of that stuff, you know, was interesting to me and then felt like sort of theoretically important. And then suddenly it became like, you know, from a you know, journalistic sense, like immediately central to a lot of the work I was doing. So there's a whole chapter where I try to really engage with those ideas late in the book. And I was really struck with the, 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 uh, Anil, is that how you pronounce his name? Um, Anil Lewis. Yeah. Um, uh, Lewis, Lewis, Anil Lewis, excuse me. Okay. Yeah. No, I, that was the first thing I couldn't remember how to pronounce in any case. Um, I was struck by the example that you write about where, you know, he's a big, big, muscular black guy, and then he becomes blind, and all of a sudden, two things happen that are different in his life. One is he's not asked to carry heavy things anymore because he's blind. And the other thing is that the same woman who people who would cross the street when they saw him coming now, you know, were like fawning over him, if I have it right. And I, I, I that struck me as just so interesting and how these how it's a perfect example of how these things sort of bounce off each other and how weird things happen as a result of these things that if we're not aware of it you know we, we you know we as people trying to make sense of this kind of stuff um can can get you know off base well yeah it's it's, yeah. it's a culture shock but more than that it's a it <laughs> I don't know. Is there a word like a you know an advanced word you know to say that it's it's not just intersectionality, it's crossover, but it is it is culture shock. Like if I spent my whole life identifying you know as a powerful person and I'm still that powerful person, but just other people suddenly don't think that anymore. What would that be? You know, how would that mess with your head? Like yeah, wow. yeah. I mean, I think. It reminds me of, um, there's a really interesting book by a sociologist named Irving Goffman called Stigma, where mm -hmm. he, he really drills into the idea of, of stigma in society and like what it means to be stigmatized. And like, I forget the exact 
sociological term he uses. I want to say it's like like master attribute or something like that. But like basically, there are certain attributes that take precedence over other attributes. You know, and that's I think Neil Lewis's story about you know being, as you say, like let's say like a two hundred and thirty pound African American man. You know, where the the little lady would cross the other side of the street if she saw him coming before. And now it's like grabbing him by the elbow to guide him across the street, right. you know, in that, in that, in that example, like his blackness was no longer the the primary attribute and his blindness sort of superseded it. Right. And there, there's a really interesting poem. I think the poet's name is uh, Lynn Manning, um, who, who I think died a, a number of years ago, but it's in um, the disability studies reader, which, which is a really great sort of book for anybody who wants to sort of dive into like the academic world of disability studies. But it, it's basically the same thing where he talks about, being a black man and being treated one way. And then as soon as that, that, that magic wand comes out, the white cane, you know, mm -hmm. you're, you, the way people regard you in public, absolutely. Yeah, parting the waves. Yeah. yeah. The difference that you're treated, right. If you're viewed as non-disabled and versus disabled, it, it's just fascinating. And I've always wondered, you know, as a blind guy, I just find it interesting how often we blind males are treated different than blind females. And the example that comes to mind is that it seems to me that more women get discriminated against uh, in taxis and Uber and all that stuff than we men do. Now, maybe that's a matter of we men just don't talk about it, but I don't think so. I think this is a real gender difference that people feel it's, it's more okay to discriminate against blind women than blind men. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I, I've had this feeling for quite a while. Well, I don't want to, you know, I'll let Annie no. speak to that. Yeah, uh, uh, well, I, uh, I mean, well, before, okay, so before okay. I started losing my vision, there were times where I felt that I was discriminated against because I was female. But then when I started losing my vision, you know, it started happening more and more frequently, you know, feeling invisible in the room, people not speaking to me, you know, you know, passing me over, those kinds of things happened more and more and more. And I wrestled with that quite often, especially as a mother, you know, being in the room with other moms and being the only one, you know, not being spoken to or not entered into a conversation with those kinds of things. Those are really difficult times for me, Grow, you know, growing accustomed to my vision loss at the same time, trying to, to balance out, you know, how to deal with, with that kind of ostracism that's the only way i can think about this <laughs> you know your comment andrew reminds me of the of something you write about a chapter about the gaze mm. right where uh it doesn't seem to matter if uh, if i remember what you said you know we men blind sighted whatever sort of have this gaze and uh, yet we also because of our disability or whatever can be invisible mm. and another paradox perhaps if, if you will and I, I, it just occurs to me that that we as the other, in this case, disabled and maybe other minority statuses as well, makes it much harder for us to control how visible we are. And what's, hmm. what's, what's that about? What, what do you mean how visible we are? Well, how we're how, how in a in a Annie was talking about how, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a meeting with parents, how she was sort of ostracized. Hmm. And, um, you know, I think we've, I've had that experience in the workplace, you know, where, you know, it's hard for me to sort of get noticed in a way that I want to get noticed, not just mm -hmm. a guy, mm -hmm. but some, a guy with 
really, really good ideas that should be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I think it's harder for us to control our level of visibility than, you know, the, you know, I, I, the, you know, say the average white guy. Hmm. Hmm. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it seems like there's another binary that happens there where either you're, there's too much attention being paid where it's right. like, okay, like I've set the bottle, the bowl of pretzels in front of you, you know, and like, we just, you don't want all that attention where you just like, you heard the bowl of pretzels, like let's move on. Or like you're saying, just like, you know, pretending that you're not there, not, not speaking to you as though you're sort of, um, yeah, like you're a stigmatized person who, right. you know, um, yeah. And, and I think the, you know, the way through that is, is this idea of, of just normalcy. Like how can it just be normalized to have a blind person in the room that who you're working with and you don't give them necessarily special treatment, right? Like, it's not like, you know, every idea you say is, oh, wow, you know, Peter, that's fantastic. You're such a special guy, you know, cause like that's the patronizing right, right, version, that, but right, also like not just dismissing it because like, why would the disabled person have any interesting thoughts? And, and I think the only way to achieve that normality is is through the process of destigmatization right to sort of Mm -hmm. find a way to make blindness not that that stigmatized characteristic but just like you know in many you know certainly racism has not been solved (laughs) there's still extreme anti-black racism in this country but i think compared to the past there are there are more spaces now where for instance like you can be in a room and blackness is not like the the primary stigmatized identity maybe, or, you know, you could say the same thing about gender, like in the past, like the mm-hmm. idea of a boardroom with a woman in it, you know, like that would be sort of unthinkable or like, you know, a, a science fiction story. Now you can walk into boardrooms that where the, you know, the CEO is, is a woman and, right. and people aren't constantly thinking about the fact that she's a woman. Not to say that there's not still like, you know, sexism, sexism and those sexist dynamics happening. But I feel like, disability is still catching up to some of these other civil rights and minority discourse movements that we're getting there. We're getting, we're, we're getting incrementally closer, but I think there's still a lot of work to be done there as you, as you point out. Yeah, I think, I think that's probably right. One of the, another uh, chapter that you wrote about has to do with universal design. Mm. Uh, as you, as you put it, the idea that stuff made for us blind people or made by blind people gets uh, all of a sudden becomes quite valuable to other people. Talk about a little bit about that, what that means for you or, you know, any, what, what comes to mind when I say universal design in conjunction with your book? That was a, a real revelation I had in, in doing some of the research, finding, you know, really piggybacking on scholars like Amy Hamray and, and Mara Mills and, and others, and also meeting really interesting blind technologists like Josh Mealy and um, Rick Boggs and, and others who all in different ways tell this story of blind innovation and disabled innovation that goes crosses from the sort of assistive, the realm of the assistive to the realm of the mainstream. And, and there's a sort of a, a side note to that story or like another kind of trope to that story, which is that often then the, the blind genius gets left behind and it just sort of becomes mm-hmm. co- co-opted sort of by the mainstream and, and the disability part is left behind. And, you know, you can see this in history of, of a lot of media technology in particular, I think because blindness is in some ways like a media disability, right? It's like blind people need technology to access information, whether it's books or, you know, screens on the internet 
you know, signage and the environment, you know, the visual images on, 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 on projectors, whatever it is, like that's all media. And so there's a sort of like hacker IT strong hacker tradition running through blindness, like back to the very beginning, like Josh Mealy, who uh, now worked at Amazon was telling me about blind technologists, you know, in the, in the, at the birth of radio, sending each other circuit diagrams through Morse code, like over the telegraph lines, oh, like wow. the original, you know, <laughs> like if you think about now, like you can go onto websites and download, you know, Arduino files, you know, to, or like 3D printer files or right. you know, to tactile maps that you can print out on your 3D braille embosser. This is like the 1911 version of, of a blind person, you know, tapping out in Morse code. Like, here, I, I, and don't ask me how you get from Morse code to a circuit diagram, but I'm sure Josh Mealy <laughs> could tell you. But it was really empowering to me to, to discover that sort of what I was geeking out about in the realm of contemporary technology has this really rich history and that, and that the, the sort of DNA of blindness and blind innovation is, is encoded in, in, in technology from the typewriter to um, really to the modern internet. If you look at optical character, character recognition yeah. and, and, you know, flatbed scanners and typewriters and um, LPs, you know, the, the, the first LPs long playing records, Right. We're developed with Robert Irwin at um, the American Founda uh, Foundation, the AFB, American Foundation for the Blind, where basically, you know, he was like, if we're going to actually make talking books a reality, you know, with the current technology, there would be, it would be like 150 records to get, you know, Hamlet. So how are we going to fit more recorded sound on, on these discs and worked with Bell Labs and blind people had access to LPs like a, almost a full decade before um, cited. Uh, people did. I remember when I got my first four track cassette player, I was in heaven. Mm -hmm. I mean, it opened up a whole new world for me. I mean, I was an avid reader with my eyes. And then when I couldn't read with my eyes anymore, you know, I had to find another way to satisfy that. Was that through uh, the NLS? That, yeah, it was through NLS. And, uh, and then I, I also would, would purchase commercial audiobooks as well. Mm. Um, but, you know, those are for like special occasions. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's your birthday. What do you want? And then, and then I was still reading large print back then. And my local library got a whole section of large print books. Mm. And, uh, that was, that was another thing that, that really helped me out. So, I mean, that, but the, I, you know, the transition for each person in terms of, their their uh, timeline and you know yeah. and their personal history of of what technology helps them it's, it's so different and that fascinates me mm. it really does and, and this, this came really clear to me back in the 1980s the uh, American Foundation for the Blind came up with a talking clock hit a button and it would say what time it was oh, yeah and my mom loved it and still has hers uh, that she got for uh, herself it still works how many years later. And then two years later, we're walking in a department store, and my aunt buys the essentially the exact same clock, and she's totally sighted. <laughs> you know, it it left it left the the crevasse between blind people <laughs> and sighted people. I just found that absolutely fascinating mm -hmm. uh, that that the whole thing's played out. Be, before yeah, I mean that's there's universal right, design, right? Like the, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, just, just, exactly right. Yeah, like you know, the, um, the classic example is the curb cut, which is yes. You know, you have wheelchair users demanding access to sidewalks. It begins in Berkeley in the 60s. And um, and then lo and behold, once you get curb cuts on street sidewalks, 
people pushing strollers, people riding bikes, people, you know, elders pulling carts, everyone benefits from from this. So you design for the edge cases and the, the whole world. Yeah, benefits. delivery people. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, it really, it really is an amazing thing to watch. So uh, before we wrap up, I'd like uh, you talk a lot about your wife and Oscar, your son, mm-hmm. and uh, how that's how they've sort of accompanied you on this journey. So talk about that and how they're both doing now. <laughs> um, we all were very sick this week, but uh, we're all doing much Aww. better. Uh, although if I've said anything that doesn't make any sense today, uh, I blame it on the on the, the, the virus that's still floating around. That. But but yeah, uh, yeah, it felt like a risk to include them because obviously, mm-hmm. whenever you write about anybody, there's a, there's it's not just there's a chance. I think it's inevitable that they're going to find something that they don't love. That's just sort of I think the nature of <laughs> of writing. Well. You know, yes. Jan, Janet Malcolm wrote a really great book called The Journalist and the Murderer. Yeah. I recommend to anybody who wants to really go deep on that dynamic. But <laughs> um, but but you know, I think they both understood that they were part of the story and that it was important to include them because that was one thing that I hadn't seen so much that I wanted to see was, was the way that, you know, I think for me and I think for maybe other people losing, losing vision or just becoming disabled, it can be an intensely solipsistic experience Mm -hmm. by which I mean, like you just are like, this is happening to me. I'm having to figure out all these things out, me, 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 right? And then right. it, you know, and then and then the people in your life don't necessarily respond in the right way or in a helpful way. And it's like, see, like nobody understands, I'm all alone. Mm-hmm. And it, it is such a crucial part of this journey for me has been not just not just um sharing it with them, but I mean not just not not just teaching them, but like like watching them and, and sort of experiencing it with them and including them in it. And the more I include them in the process, the more manageable it feels to me and the more not just manageable but like you've both said you know the more expansive it feels to me and that just felt like a really important idea to include and the only way i felt like i could include it in a way that would be convincing for a reader was to write with with some intense specificity about my relationship and my marriage and my my being a father how old is oscar now and how is he doing he's 11 right now he is at rehearsal for a musical that he's in um but he's doing great he i think is really it's really sweet to see him i mean you know normally i'm the one who's proud of him but i think he's really psyched about the book and just like proud of me for you know because he saw me it was during the pandemic so he was home a lot and just like would see me like come down and refill my coffee mug and then like trudge back upstairs and and now he sees me you know uh, delighting in the sort of response to it so it's fun to see him proud of me for that and you know yeah. and I'm, I'm proud of him for you know the one thing i'll say about him with this whole subject matter too is that you know i think for lily you know she knew me when i was not fully sighted but way more sighted than i am now and this is something that we've sort of been adapting to together whereas for him you know he's basically always known me as a cane user always known me as somebody with low vision you know and certainly has noticed me losing vision but sort of it's a default for him like it's just dad is this way and and mm-hmm. that in turn has helped me normalize it yeah. myself and that i you know nobody could have given that to me but oscar that's really interesting yeah it's funny i have uh i've recently got married and i've connected with uh, two 11 year old uh, identical tw- uh, twins who are mm. uh, and you know it's the same kind of thing you know, they, they're very used to being around blind people because my wife is also blind and they're wonderful. Mm. 
They're wonderful about it. They're wonderful about describing things. They're wonderful about accepting who we are. And it, it's just it's just a nice thing to to, to be a part of. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, my daughter is 30 now, you know, and once in a while I ask her, well, you know, what's it like, you know, being around me, you know, growing up with a blind mom? She goes, she always says this, you know, I'm just, it's just who you are. Like, you know, I forget you're blind. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the biggest compliment I think I could have (laughs) in the context of being a mom. She goes, mom, you just did everything the way everybody else did, you know, like relax. (laughs) I love that. Um, Yeah. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been wonderful. I I hope you feel better soon. Uh, And uh, uh, I hope we can continue this uh, conversation down the road. I I do too. Thanks to you both. This is a really fun conversation for me too. Art Parlor is brought to you by Friends in Art and ACB Media. It airs several times a week on ACB Media One. To listen and for a full schedule, go to acbmedia.org slash one. Art Parlor is also available as a podcast. Just search for Art Parlor in your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at artparlor at friendsinart.org. And please feel free to check out our website, www.friendsinart.org. Thank you so much for listening and for your support. We'll be back next month.